20 people are, are hovered around in a, a circle around this dead bird. And there's this white Mercedes with a big old red blood spot on the, on the hood of the car and down the window. And I'm just like, this couldn't be any worse. This is horrible. Oh my God. Welcome to the DSD Hunting Podcast. I'm Brad Cochran with my co-host Dave Smith. We're going to try something here uh, for the first time. We did a little census on Instagram and we have, uh, looks like about, oh, 35, 40 questions here um, from some of our followers. And we're going to try to answer as many of these as possible. Um, going to go back and forth. Dave will ask a question. We'll kind of both give our input on it. And then um, I'll ask a question and we'll go back and forth. But before we do get started, I see a lot of these questions here uh, are, are about um, turkeys and turkey hunting. And I just want to be uh, up front and say that this is going to be a goose Q&A. Um, we're going to be getting into turkeys here in the near future, but with it still being goose season and turkey season being a few months away, we're going to, we're going to wrap up a couple more episodes on, uh, goose hunting. So, uh, anyhow, one, oh, one question I do see here though, from Nathan Bender one is regarding turkeys new turkey product for 19 and future so i'll just say i'll throw out there real quick that we do have a new jake strutter decoy which we're really excited about that's um available now for 2019 and if you want more information about it go to our website check us out on facebook or instagram um, and we will cover more about that um in upcoming podcasts so with that i will turn it over to dave do you have a question picked out dave sure do first one is uh just for you brad <laughs> and it is why are your decoys so expensive <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's a real question and so we're not going to sugarcoat it we're not going to pass over it so um why don't you take that one brad oh boy where would i and good morning begin? by the way partner <laughs> you too. Thanks. Uh, why are your decoys so expensive? Um, I think at the root of it, because we're more concerned with making the best decoy we can possibly produce than we are with making a decoy that's ultra affordable. Um, you know, there's, there's dozens and dozens. It seems like every day there's a new decoy maker out on the market. Um, and there's, there's dozens of really super cheap, affordable options out there. So, um, you know, I guess if you're looking for cheap decoys, um, don't, don't buy DSDs. <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> but, that's... um, but no, we use, you know, we, we use all the, the best materials. We don't, we don't cut corners and, um, and you know, Labor certainly isn't cheap. Um, our our molding process is unique in that we uh, we rotocast using 
rubber molds. We only get about 50 parts per rubber mold, and then the mold has to be re-poured. Uh, by, by comparison, a blow-molded decoy, which is going to be 99% of the decoys that you see available on the market, um, all of the ones that are mass-produced, um, are going to be made from metal molds, and the lifespan on, on a metal mold is conservatively 10,000 parts. You, you might get, you know, 100,000 or more parts even. So um, they're, they're just, they're made to be, to be cheap, mass-produced when they're, when they're blow-molded, or cheaper, I should say. Yeah, I think that I think that pretty pretty much covers it, and it, it's it's kind of important to know that you know there's there's a lot of decoys available, a lot of different brands, and each one of them fills a niche, and it wouldn't do anyone any good if if we were all just trying to fill the fill the same niche, and there's already a lot of decoys out there where the the number one focus is price, and right. what we're what we're trying to do is the number one focus is quality, and it's just like that's re- the reason why. Um, you, you don't see nothing but you know Nissan Sentras on the road. Like there's 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 other things. Um, so there's a lot of options, and um, you know there there's a there's a demand for for everything, and we're we're trying to um, we're trying to meet the demands of of hunters that want ultra high quality. And you know, and I think that the number one thing that people what you're paying for when you buy a DSD, I think is the you know the, the product itself the the finish and the sculpture um you know an, an accurate decoy but also the finish and the painting and paint itself is unbelievably expensive and the painting process is is expensive but well and even things like our, our spectrometer i mean that was like six thousand bucks yeah that's a pretty big expenditure for for us and there's a lot of things like that but uh, it, what it results in is a decoy that works, that works better. So it costs a little more, but it works better. Um, and it, you can also save a little money with other ones, but it might not work as good. So, and I think another thing that's worth mentioning is that, uh, with, with DSDs, um, your pay, your more, uh, of the, the cost of the decoy is going directly back into the decoy than any other decoy you know yeah we we don't put a lot back into marketing we're you know between five to ten percent of our you know of our gross sales goes into to to marketing our product um and that's very very conservative uh by comparison you know there's a lot of companies that are 25 percent or more and so a lot of you know, a lot of the money that you pay for a decoy, you're, you're actually paying for, for the marketing. Um, and, and so we're, we're pretty unique in that there's really not a whole lot of that. We don't have a whole lot of f- fancy packaging. You know, we're pretty low key. We do a handful of shows every year. I mean, we're just, we're not really out there, you know, putting, putting a lot of money into marketing. We really do try to let the, the product sell itself. Right. Yeah, you're 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 paying for that that material and that paint and that labor and not, you know, tons of shipping on, you know, and tariffs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um okay, so then I think that just about covers that question. I mean, we could certainly talk on and on and on, but um we're going to try to get to 
the next question here um, for the sake of, of time. Um, band stories. This is one we hear, we hear a lot about. Um, requests for more band stories. So SMG2550 writes, band stories, you guys have so many that there has to be some more great stories to tell. So um, one of the ones that Scott and I get requested, Dave, is about the the story regarding the um, radio collar that caught oh. fire when you shot it. Can you indulge us with that story, please? Uh, yeah. <clears throat> Let's see. That was a long time ago, so I'll remember it as, as best as I can. Um, so that was me hunting by myself out on a tide flat, and I... Um, it's within view of the, of a, ma- a major highway, and this was on the coast. And it was kind of a place that I really didn't want people to know that I, that I was hunting out there because it was a really good spot, and uh, I just didn't want to be very very visible. So what I would do is, you know, I'd get there get there in the morning in the dark, um, and I'd pull my truck over the side and unload my my boat. I was using a marsh rat, and. Uh, of like six decoys and then then I would park uh, go park my truck up a road off the main highway and sort of hide my truck and then walk back and then get in the cut and then I'd work my way out through the tide flat and the the beauty of that one was that I could get out there at low tide or high tide um, but there were certain tides once in a while where the whole thing would be covered with water but I didn't have to deal with that very often, but I just watched the tides. <clears throat> so once I'd get out there, I'd kind of, you know, have this place to myself, and it was kind of nice and stuff, and um, tried to, you know, um, tried to not be very visible and everything and get as far away from the highway as I could. But one morning, I was hunting out there, and it was pretty foggy. Um, and finally, the fog, the fog was lifting, and a flock of geese <clears throat> came in, and I had to kind of swing around and make a weird shot. And I shot this collared goose. And as soon as I shot it, it apparently had a radio transmitter. I didn't know it at the time. I just, just saw a collar. And it um, it looked like somebody just lit a flare. And a ton of smoke <laughs> started coming out of this thing. And it kind of went up for a second and then down and like dive bombing down. It looked it looked like, you know, you're watching a war movie. It was like this war plane just like going down and this huge, you know, line of, <clears throat> of smoke coming out of the back of it. And then it, it hits the ground. And then it's like, I'm like, my God, it's like it's going to start a fire or something. But, it, you know, all the grass was wet and everything like that. <coughs> Excuse me, but. But now there's a because of the extra moisture that this thing now occurred. Um, there's just more and more and more smoke. I mean, it's like you can't believe how much smoke is coming out of this this thing when there's a single double A battery, <clears throat> and I mean that's the that's the only source of of energy from that thing. And I must have just hit it um, just just right or just wrong, I guess with the with the shot. But anyways, the whole thing is like, there's like literally some flames are coming off of it. Like not, not sparks, but you know, like, like when you light a flare or something like that, yeah. there's, there's just a little bit of that coming up and then just tons and tons and tons of smoke. And I can just remember, I'm just like, what in the world is going on? And then it kind of dawned on me that it was a radio transmitter and that this is all normal. I didn't shoot a robotic goose or something. <laughs> 
<laughs> but I remember just like, you know, I'm scrambling out there on that tide flat and like there's the highway and cars going by and stuff. And I'm just like trying to get, you know, luckily the goose was dead and everything, but it's like, there's all this smoke coming out of this thing. And I'm trying to, you know, get it and get it back in my boat. And I, you know, get over there and I, I don't want to put it inside my boat or anything like that. But um, it was all fine and it was all fun and stuff. But I just had never had that happen before. But that's really all there is to that story. <laughs> you know, that um, that made me think of another story that we'll have to cover maybe at a, another time down the road. Um well, you Sa- can't save it wait, for wait, another wait, wait. episode. You can't just leave us. With well, that. it involves you <clears throat> and a net collar that crash landed on top of a BMW. Oh my goodness! Oh yeah, I'm yeah. That's that's right. Well, I'll make that one really quick, really quick. Then I can't remember. I thought it was a Mercedes, but I can't remember. But that one was. I got an invite to go hunt a field that was fairly close to a refuge and I shot a yellow collar that morning and I was pretty happy about that and everything and on the I I did I spotted a second one and my biggest regret was this the second one was really just floating right in like it was and and the guy that I was with who was nice enough to invite me he really could have seen that collar and and I really should have you know I was on the right hand side and he was on the left hand side he's left-handed and um if I had to do it over again, I really would have just let him shoot it. But I've never done that in my life. Like I, I've never been able to have that presence of mind to say, "Okay, here's a collar, and it's gonna be it's gonna be at a really good angle for this guy." I'll let him shoot it. Like my thinking has always been, if you see one, you better sit up and shoot it. Like you better not hesitate because I've seen a lot of them uh, get you know lost or missed or um, you know opportunities blown because people didn't didn't react. So kind of my my whole thing has always been to just react well (coughs) excuse me i i probably reacted too quick because he was hard to my right and i'm right-handed and my blind wasn't turned very hard to the right i would have turned it further i guess um if i had set up everything and so i took this super hard to my right shot and i shot and i didn't make a very good shot at all and I'm watching the bird fly, <laughs> fly away, and he's limping, limping, you know, not not flying very well, and everything, and he's getting further, further, further away, and I'm I'm just watching in horror as he's flying towards the refuge, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna lose this bird, and it's gonna land out in the refuge and stuff. Well, next thing I know, he's flying right towards the parking lot where all these birders are out there at the refuge. They've got <laughs> tripods set up and everything, and I'm watching my bird, and he, you know how, you know when. <laughs> when they their last little bit right. of life they, the they kind of go up a yeah. little bit and they're fluttering and stuff and then just drops like a rock the stone dead right in the parking lot did you yeah. hear a bang i didn't hear a bang it was too far away it was a long ways away but you've never seen someone sprint so fast um running across that field and the mud was deep and everything like that and you know i'm like out of shape and uh make it all the way over there and the guy that was with me ran with me too and I was kind of like, for some reason, I was just like, oh, my gosh, like if, if I can come out of here with with this collar, you know, I'll be I'll be so happy, you know, but I'm, like here it is. It's amidst all these birders, you know, and we get over there and it's just like to my horror. The bird is the, like about 20 people are 
or hovered around in a, a circle around this dead bird. And there's this white Mercedes with a big old red blood spot on the on the hood of the car and down the window. And I'm just like, this couldn't be any worse. This is horrible. Oh, my God. And, um, yeah, I mean, I'm not super proud of this. Like, like you know, I probably... It was, it was probably all poor judgment on my part to even be hunting there or anything and poor judgment to take that shot. And, you know, I probably should have made a better shot and, and I should have, should have let it come in closer in front of me or I should have, should have let the other guy shoot it. Um, but you know, it's, that's what happened. That's, I, I did what I did. And now, you know, it's, you can't change that. And we get over there and there's these two ladies that were driving the car that were birders. And I'm just like, I am just ready to get on my knees and just like apologize like crazy and like I'll t- you know, take their car through the washer, wash up my hand or anything like that. And they're just laughing about it. They just think it was just the coolest thing ever. And all these people are, are, are hovered around this bird and everything. And I'm like, here's a bunch of birders. Like, how am I, am I ever going to get my bird, you know, from them? I'm surprised they weren't like trying to give it CPR or something. I, they weren't. I mean, they were just, they were, they were looking at the bird and they just thought it was the coolest thing ever. And it was just cool to see one up close and everything. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, what kind of a world am I in right now? Like, these people are like so cool and so understanding and just thought it was fun and funny and, and. That was that, uh, and I got I got my bird, and I <laughs> and I learned a learned a lesson too. So, wow! Yeah, I got really lucky there, and just there was some really really kind people. Uh, lucky for me. Good deal. Okay, well, so now it's time to hit you up with an, with another question. Okay. And I mean, I don't know what order you're going in, but I've <laughs> the next one. I'm going along here. I don't know if you'll like this one either. But uh, this is. Um, Looks like Stefan Jackman, and it says um, he wants to know how access has changed in the last ten years and how it's ruining hunting. Hmm. Boy, that's an interesting one. How access has changed in the last ten years and how it's ruined hunting. Um. Well, honestly, I'd, I'd have to say from from my standpoint, you got to understand, you know. That question, if you were to ask it to me, relative um, to the places where I hunt, I mean, it's changed some, but it isn't like there's zero access anymore. I mean, I'm still a do-it-yourself freelance hunter like like I've always been. You know, I don't have any big leases that I depend on year after year that I shell out big dollars for. I just build relationships with with farmers and maintain them over the years and, and, and really in, in my area, um, and areas I travel to, uh, I'd have to say that not a whole lot has changed as far as access goes. I mean, sure. It's probably, um, you know, for, for the most part, I guess on average, it's a little tougher than it used to be, but I can't honestly say that it's, you know, that it's a whole lot worse. Yeah. So, yeah, my, my feeling is I would say um, that what, what Stefan's talking about to me, that that applies more to big game hunting. Like in our, like in our state, it used to be that there was so much access for big game hunting. And, and also you could go on any property that wasn't posted. I mean, there was a time when that was the case. Mm -hmm. And, but as far as bird hunting goes, you know, you're, 
you're hunting almost always in agricultural fields, which is privately owned. And so the worst thing, I assume, Stefan, if you're listening, what you're talking about is the idea that some places to bird hunt or goose hunt um, have been leased, whereas it used to be that you could go get permission. And, it, and you know, that is that is a little bit a little bit troubling or at least, you know, leased by guides and, and make it tougher. But, you know, I kind of agree with Brad, though. I really think that, you know, that if you if you take really, really, really good care of any properties that you do get permission from and take really, really good care of the people that do give you permission, um, I think that, that, you know, you'll be able to go back again and again. And, you know, I hope that not every place is all is all leased up. Um, and that there's still some, you know, there's still opportunities everywhere. There, there definitely is here, and I hope, you know, I hope that's the case everywhere. But it doesn't sound like, you know, maybe that's completely the case for for Stefan. But um, I, I don't know what else to say, say about that. I don't know really what to do to do about it. I mean, other than just, um, just try to if things change, just accept that they've changed and try to adapt. Um, just go with the flow and if you can't beat them, join them, do whatever you got to do that'll get you hunting. These are the good old days right now. Unfortunately, they might've been much better 10 or 20 years ago and they'll probably be worse 10 or 20 years from now. So adapt and change, do what you have to do to get hunting. Yep. Yeah. I mean, more, more people, less accessible land unfortunately I, I i guess i would say one thing i have noticed is that there are places now um you know a lot of places now that i see um that have been swallowed up by urban growth um that's that's something that isn't unfortunately changing um anytime soon i don't really know what you can do about that yeah, and also um, goose hunting pressure, like in our area, has pushed a lot of geese to inside city limits. Yep, absolutely. Where they can't be hunted, um, and that's that's another that's right. another tough one. But on that one, that goes back to you know just hunting practices. Like there's there's ways that you can hunt geese that that don't um, that don't do that. Right. And there's there's ways that do, but the problem is is you got to have everybody on board, um, or else it doesn't work. Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, so there's a question here. Uh, Spencer Martinson um, wants to know about scouting and permission strategies. We're going to skip over that one for the moment. We're going to have Travis Reeser here um, shortly, and we're going to do a whole segment on that. Um, so let's let's go to the next one on on my little list here and that is crazy farmer ad wants to know um how about some more lay down tips in winter wheat etc love dave's tips i mean i don't know if there's any other things sort of out of the box that we didn't cover i mean i there's some theories i guess that i have on on hunting winter wheat um some some things that you could try. I mean, the things that we've covered before and things that have worked for sh- for sure. If if you're forced, I mean, obviously in a winter wheat field, if there's a if there's a decent edge, and it doesn't have anything really tall, any really tall trees around it, um, that's that's a great way to go. And then if that's not an option, and you have to, your only choice is to hunt out in the middle. Um, I kind of feel like the best 
option is to sort of create a fake fence line. We've talked about that before. And if you can do that before the season, uh, that's better. And if you have to do it, you know, the, the night before, the morning of, or whatever like that, that's that's doable too. It, it works. We've done it a lot of times. Um, it's a little bit of a pain, but that that works. And then outside of that, you know, as far as hunting a, in a in a big middle with with without anything like that, I mean, sometimes you can get away with that once or twice in the middle of the season if nobody around you is doing that and they, you haven't done it in a long time. Um, you know, you can, you can do it. And I don't know if, you know, I, if I would guarantee that you would get birds to fit to finish, but you could have a really good goose hunt and get a lot of close shots and stuff. And some people have even kind of gone out of their way to, to kind of make the blind even more obvious. Um, and I mean, I've seen, um, you know, tall, tall, like sit up blinds out in the middle of fields, like when someone wants to try that one time. And then as far as, um, theories, um, one time I took a box and I put, um, mirrored sides on it on all four sides. And the, the mirror material that I use, there's two types that you can use. One is, is mylar sheeting. Um, but I don't like that because it tends to get wrinkles in it. And then some of those wrinkles turn a kind of point upward and tend to reflect the sun. But um, but plastic mirror material so that it's safe. You won't, you don't have to worry about, it's lightweight. You don't have to worry about breaking it and cutting yourself or anything like that. Um, and that on all four sides and then grassing the top. Um, so if you, if you were to make a blind or grass if you're blind that way, but if you were to make a blind that was shaped basically like a coffin with vertical sides or even slightly, um, slightly slanted, sides slanting down towards the ground with a mirrored finish um, and then grassing the top and put your decoys all around you. That's the next thing that I would try personally. Mm -hmm. I, I built a prototype of that um, and walked around it in my yard and it's, it, it's kind of freaky. Like it's, it's amazing how it disappears. Um, but it's, <coughs> it's, that's mostly a theory. That's the only, that's the only thing I had haven't tried and then we talked about ghillie suits and i've done ghillie suits before and i have friends that do ghillie suits ghillie suits work great they're not very comfortable it's not very comfortable laying laying there um if you have a pad and a slightly slightly elevate your you know your shoulders that and neck that helps quite a bit but they're just not very comfortable but ghillie suits do work really well yeah yeah so yeah i i think i think you're right you have to you just have to kind of pick your poison do you want to be um, do you want to be comfortable in which case you're going to need to be in like a layout style blind or an a-frame blind or do you want to be really really low profile um, you know in which case if you're in a winter wheat field your best option is going to be to be blindless essentially and either go with a ghillie or you know I've seen snow goose hunters you know use use white Tyvek suits um which which works you know pretty well in large spreads especially um at times so for me personally um i'm a huge proponent of getting out of the decoys i like to be 20 25 yards away from my closest decoy and i like to put in the effort to create a hide if there's no grass 
anywhere in sight if there's no ditches no clumps of grass you know um you know i will even get there the night before if i have to and just grass my blind you know maybe somewhere down the road where there is um good cover and then haul my blind out there and even bring lots of extra cover and the stuff that works really really well is anything that you can break off you know that has a stem and i like to bring you know pruning shears with me and and if you cut cut it off you know close to the ground at an angle you can you know you can usually stake it into the ground around your blind and what that does is it really breaks up the profile of your your blind and and all you're doing is you're just trying to make it look like a random clump of grass that's out there in the field and geese <clears throat> yeah they can they can um they can get to be you know pr pretty wise late in the season but they don't really ever seem to catch on to you know a really natural looking hide even if it wasn't there the day before i mean they're geese they don't know that you know plants can't grow overnight like that you right. know what i mean so um if you show them something that looks like it could be there uh, the more natural you can make it look the better and i've done very well in fields that had literally zero cover and brought everything in with me and spent even several hours uh, just manufacturing a hide that looked good and natural and again i think it is pretty key because the geese will they'll see it and they'll be a little cautious they don't want to land right on top of it but if you have your decoys out at 20 25 yards i've i've done really really well you know being again outside of the decoys yeah right on it just seems like they're they're focusing on <clears throat> on the birds on the decoys right. and not not on you and you know, gotta gotta kind of watch you know when you're calling you don't call like crazy in that situation while the birds are really close and all that stuff i mean would you agree with that um so that they're looking right down into your blinds and all that stuff i, I would know. agree with that and and i would also like to add that kind of um to to elaborate on what i said about making the uh, the blind look as natural as possible. Picking a spot like a transition in the field, you know, uh, seems to look the most natural. I don't, I don't typically, you know, take a bunch of, of, of grass, foreign looking grass and take it out into the very middle of a winter wheat field. I, I, I typically will put it along a, you know, a transition sure, or an edge somewhere. Well, that, as a great segue into the next question, uh, and that is how to call cacklers. And Brad, <clears throat> you are the master cackler caller and cackler call designer. So <clears throat> that's a perfect question for you, how to call cacklers. Oh, boy. <laughs> and it's probably hard to explain it. It's very hard to explain it. Do your best. Huh. <laughs> okay, well, I wish there was more to it. Um, I think that the biggest key to calling cacklers is is finding the right the right sound you know specifically getting something that is and you know a call that was designed for hunting for hunting cacklers um you know and not just a, a honker call that's tuned higher because it'll just never make that 
super, super high-end clock that a cackler makes. And really, when I call cacklers, it's it's nothing fancy. I mean, it certainly wouldn't win any any contest. Um, Except for you did literally win a cackler calling contest. Well, well, and I witnessed that. I know that because I lost to you. I got second place and you got first. So, Right, out of what, <clears throat> three callers? Uh, I think it was more than that, but maybe, maybe um, six. The, the point being, it, it, it was a meat contest, and it was judged by people who know what cacklers sound Perfect. like. Perfect. So, Sounds good to me. Anyways, um. But no, the uh, as far as as far as what I I blow, um, I use a a call that I kind of collaborated with Bill Saunders on. We called it the BC Minima because there was all these cackler calls out there at the time, but nothing that was really truly designed for the cackler, the the true Pacific Coast, you know, West Coast cackler, and the you know the scientific name at the time was BC Minima for that. So we we. Um, we call it the, the, the minima anyhow. Um, so that's the call I use. And as far as what I, I call at them with, um, boy, it's, it's so simple. It's, it's ridiculously simple in, in terms of, of, um, you know, the, the, um, I guess lack of, of different sounds I make. It's, it's really about, producing you know controlling the tempo and and really all i do is cluck over and over and over again it's actually probably really annoying to listen to if you're just you know sitting there next to me oh yeah it it definitely is (laughs) well what i I would say is what my observation of of hunting from hunting with you while you're calling cacklers and stuff is yeah you do you do you do a string of clucks but it to me what it sounds like is it sounds like, you know, a single cackler that's either, you know, really, really excited um, or, or, or really, really desperate. Like, and, and I've heard cacklers on the ground do that. And that is just a deadly, I mean, that's just, it seems to work really well. And then I've also watched you. So I think one thing that you kind of take for granted or don't pay attention, but I think the timing of those is pretty important. It's so, absolutely critical. Yeah. yeah. So, and that's one thing that it's just you know you almost have to just do it enough to to learn when when to do it when uh, like with calling almost anything, when to when to be quiet, when to pour it on, when to you know back off and all that stuff. And then, do you still um, kind of make some some soft sounds with that? I mean, I I I been working on that the last like decade or so and try to try to do some of that like some some sort of lay down stuff or just something to keep them interested almost while they're circling as long as you don't don't do it while they're like right overhead or or do you pretty much just do just do an excited string and let it let that do the work for you almost entirely an excited string okay just just up and down like you said it's it's it sounds like it's it's a single goose and he's just getting really, really excited. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's just like cluck, 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 cluck. And with cacklers, they come in large flocks oftentimes. And so really what I'm looking for is I'm looking for a single bird to call to. 
and it's all about reading body language and there's really no substitute for practice you just have to get out and you have to call to that flock and as soon as you see a bird that looks interested and you know you have to read that by their body language you know generally it's going to be a bird that slows its wing beat down and maybe starts to break formation call to that bird don't even look at the rest of the flock just call to that bird and a lot of times with cacklers um, if you can get one committed the rest will follow right on that's great advice okay so dave i've got one for you here and it's from um i apologize in advance if i get this wrong but it looks like h2o are you nuts um and the question is about hunting with a small spread of decoys versus large spreads of low quality decoys okay um well you know um I think I'm a little bit biased um, because I would say that our whole company, we've, you know, we've been in business 20 years now. And the way that we've survived, I think, is on the idea that um, realism is more important than numbers. And, you know, I think the main reason for that, that the, the main reason why that was so appealing to us is because I'm like really lazy. Um, I would way rather put out 36 decoys or 18 decoys than 350. And I like sleep. That's no secret. Um, and if I can get an extra half hour of sleep, I'm, I'm all over it. And um, plus to me, you know, it just makes hunting more fun. Like I, if I can go out, I mean, probably one of the funnest days I've ever had in my life was with seven decoys out. And I've done several several hunts with nine decoys with five with 11. Um, and so my, my theories on it are, um, a, a couple things. One is if everybody around you is using a certain number, um, then I like to go to one side or the other of that. And I have, you know, I have done, um, on the bigger side of that. And you and I have done that together and we've done that guiding and we've done it with groups of friends where we put out more cackler decoys than any, any cacklers in the Valley have ever seen. And we've had awesome results with it and stuff. But, um, also I like to put out fewer decoys than, than any of the birds I've ever seen. And, and, um, that is also something that just, um, looks like it's something other than the classic decoy spread you know and it's same with duck hunting with duck hunting i really feel like that's a huge deal like if everybody can carry three dozen duck decoys and that's how much they put out especially hunting on public um and then if you if you bring you know seven or eight or nine or something like that it's just all of a sudden and especially if they have motion or whatever all of a sudden you you're showing the birds something different than than, the, than what they see day in and day out. Um, so then the other thing is, is the, where realism um, makes a big difference is, you know, what, like what we've said before is, if if you're sitting there hunting and you have 150 decoys out and all of a sudden seven or eight live birds go land 100 yards away from you, like what what does everybody do? You go flush, you go flush those live birds out. Well, if if the large number of lower quality decoys theory was true, well, you wouldn't even be worried about those because about those live birds that were hundred yards away, because if another flock came they're they're going to come to your 150 decoys. 
but they don't. Well, the seven would have never landed, you know, or the seven would have never landed to begin with. Yeah, exactly. A- away, away, they would have come to your away. decoys. Yeah, yeah, and so, yeah, those seven, that those seven tell you <laughs> tell you everything you need to know right there, and it and it happens, um, and so. You flesh those out because you're afraid that the next flock that comes is going to go land with those seven, and they probably are. And the reason why is because those seven are convincing. They're con- they're they're convincing the real birds that those are real birds. So, so now if your decoys can be as realistic as possible, it the number that you have is not as important as how how convinced those birds coming in are that those are real real birds yeah so that's i mean to me that's that's everything that's huge you have anything to add to that um i just add that it has to go hand in hand with you know your hide and your calling too um you know especially on pressure birds if 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 they can see you you know um it really doesn't matter how realistic your decoys are i mean realistic decoys are no substitute for a poor hide you know and and over calling you know, you, you still got to get those parts of the equation right. Sure. But um, purely from a decoy standpoint, yeah, I'm I'm completely with you. I'm in favor of fewer realistic decoys versus, you know, a big spread of, of mediocre decoys. I'll, I'll take the smaller spread any day of the week. Right on. Okay, sir, I have a question from you from... Wingman Pacific Northwest, and it is, how has the hunting industry changed in the last 20 years? How has the hunting industry changed in the last 20 years? Oh, boy. (laughs) My goodness. Okay, well, um, so I started goose hunting 25 years ago, and when I first started hunting, there were there was no commercially available layout blinds or A-frame blinds. Um, there were no short read calls. There were no ultra realistic decoys. There were far far fewer decoy brands in general. Um, there weren't very many full body decoys, and none of them were were ultra realistic. So, um, in in the last twenty years, we have seen creation of you know, the, the layout blind um, and, and the A-frame blind, both, you know, both great designs, super, super effective and have their place. Um, I will say that, you know, just like anything, birds are catching on to them more and more. It seems like, you know, the, the A-frame is a, newer, is a newer blind to the market and birds are, are still working really well to A-frame blinds. And um, that's not to say that you can't still decoy them to to layout blinds because you you absolutely can and that's what i hunt out of still um it's just that the days of being able to throw a layout blind out in the middle of your decoy spread and throw you know a few corn stalks on it and you know kill honkers you know right in your face at 10 15 yards those, those, those days are few and far between now birds are really really picking up on the the profile of the layout blind it's it's really hard to get away with um, with poorly poorly concealed layout blinds these days. So um, I guess that would kind of cover the um, the blinds, and then and then um, yeah. But overall, the the availability of blinds is far far better 
than it was 20 years ago and and same with the calls and and same with the decoys i mean you look at goose calls um you can you can there's literally it seems like hundreds of of custom calls available on the market now uh 20 years ago i'm trying to remember if there was even a short re goose call i think that they probably were in their infancy let's see 20 years ago i kind of think think night and hail would have been making the the double clock back then yeah it seems like i i can't remember but you know it seems like there was you know flute calls were pretty popular and then yeah the the night and hail night and hail double clucker and then the um, grounds half breed and the half breed would have been available 20 years ago in fact it would have come out it would have come out about 25 years ago come to think of it because um yeah, it it came out shortly after I began. I began a goose hunt. That was twenty five years ago. So yeah, it's probably twenty two, twenty three years now. Um, I guess but, what I, uh, what I would add to that is um, shotguns and loads, and you know, it's like well, we all started out shooting lead. Lead was amazing, and uh, we um, the, and then we went to steel, and steel was, you know, kind of horrible at first. And shotguns have gotten lighter and easier to swing and easier to aim. And um, steel loads have gotten much, much, much better. And oh, then man, they non-toxic have. shots is just is just amazing. Like better, better than lead. So um, the downside is the expense of it all. But there's been some big changes in tu- um, in tubes and patterning and all that stuff. Um, that's gotten gotten a lot better. Yeah, just overall, there's a lot of of really, really awesome products available now but but yeah man can you remember when steel shot first came out how oh, bad it was, it was? i mean I, I remember one of the biggest problems uh we used to have with with our steel was that if you'd get it wet it would rust and mm-hmm. then um you know you'd be you, shooting a slug you would be shooting slugs out of yeah. yeah yeah so yeah, then if you hit a bird you know you're really really doing good right and they didn't yeah they didn't waterproof the um you know the crimp mm-hmm. on the shell yeah and then they didn't uh they they just weren't waterproof in the shells back then, and so um, your powder could get wet, and mm-hmm. and then you'd you'd have to pray that the primer had enough, you know, force to get your <laughs> get your load through your your barrel. <laughs> yeah, well, and I remember a lot of people, you know, talking about oh, it just it takes a while to get used to shoot it and figure out your leads because of the speed of it, and I'm like, oh my god, you gotta be kidding me, like you start doing the math on that and it's like it really if you're literally trying to to um you know make an adjustment for the speeds of of steel like i that seems seem like a disaster you know it's like just uh focus focus on just just trying to shoot it trying to make a good make a good shot and don't don't mess with your leads and all that stuff so but yeah but here we are you know all this time later and everything's everything's working out pretty good i would say yeah and then uh, thanks to you um boy the the decoy market has changed just just drastically i mean when when i first started hunting 20 years ago i was a big silhouette guy um i used a, a lot of silhouettes and um then i switched over to full bodies they weren't ultra realistic full bodies but they were full bodies and i used i used fewer of them and i did notice that 
we would get better shots on birds later in the season, but we still struggled to consistently, you know, finish birds and, and, and shoot limits, especially later in the season. And boy, the first, the first season I started using, um, your decoys, it was just unbelievable. The, the difference, you know, from going to a, you know, pretty mediocre looking decoy to one yeah. that actually looked like a bird. And was bird size too. That was a big, that was a big part. For some reason, you know, guys uh, were were real big on on oversized decoys yeah. back yeah. in the day. And um, I, I'm a huge proponent in large part because you've kind of shown me the way um, it, how how important it is to get a bird sized decoy. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think another thing is one that is um, one that is at the proper height too you know there's this there's this big craze you you see a lot of guys using using full bodies that are on these super long stakes and i just have to you know i just have to think to myself man it's just so easy for a bird to pick off i've seen you know drone footage over Mm -hmm. spreads of decoys where the decoys are sitting 16 inches 18 inches off the ground you know and it's like wow yeah, that throws the shadows off and everything. It just doesn't look natural. And well, it is. it amazes me sometimes. Um, I mean, I saw a thing not too long ago where a guy was saying, like, talking about duck decoys, and um, he was saying how much he loves this certain brand because of how much they sh- they show up, you know? Like they – and I'm I'm kind of thinking to myself, well, you know, that, you know, they're like, well, you can see them from so much further away. And, and I'm like, well, my goodness, if, you, if the whole goal is just to get them to show up, like we could paint, we could make some decoys and paint them silver, or something like that. But the thing is, it's not just to, sh- to get them to show up. I mean, that's why you scout and call and you know things like that. And with with decoys, it's like, yeah, you're right. It's almost counterintuitive. Some of the people they make they make a decoy that's finally a little more bird size, and then and then give it you know a big huge long stake or whatever, so that it shows up more or, or whatever. And it's like now you kind of going the wrong direction, going away from realism at that point. Yeah. So I guess a a thing I would add to the question regarding what's changed in the last 20 years is just the, you know, the wealth of, of knowledge and how accessible it all is, you know, with social media and, and, you know, podcasts these days. I mean, um, I remember when I was first getting into the sport um, and I was thirsty for knowledge. Um, you know, we, I would thumb through mail order catalogs and, and order, you know, as many VHS or CD instructionals as I could find. And there weren't many available, um, you know, and listen to them over and over and over again. But, uh, anymore, all that information is, is free and it's everywhere everywhere you look yeah it's you know it's amazing what's on youtube these days um and people take you know a lot of a lot of time out of their day to put information on there it's just like it's so helpful it's just like basically anything that you want to know it's um it's it's pretty pretty nice of people to do that but yeah it's it is it is pretty amazing that's for sure Okay, Dave, so I've got a question for you here from B. Richter 68 um, and it's regarding 
our upcoming snow goose decoy and when you will be making a full body mallard <laughs> wink <laughs> okay yeah is that b richter or is that brichter that's the hard part with all these things i think that's b richter i think it is too, um, i think i know who that is yeah i believe i believe it's so, a guy named brian richter yeah so um okay the upcoming snow goose decoy yeah, that's we've been working on that for quite a long time. The um, there's four poses. All four poses are done. What we're doing right now is just the development of the product, and it's it is taking a long time, um, but we're working on it. We're working hard on it. Like yeah, we're we're literally sitting here and we're surrounded by snow snow goose prototypes. Um, so we're working on it. We've also made some some hunting prototypes we've made 80 or so and they've been hunted over all season long and have more hunting to do this uh still this this fall this winter and this spring um but as far as it when it will come out and be available on the market um the goal is by next summer and that is our hope and i would think that um you know at the rate that things are going that that will be that that will work out but Here's the thing is we're committed to trying to make it right. And so if it's not quite ready by, by next summer, then it will have to be the following spring um, because, you know, we just need to do it right. We just need to make it right. And this is kind of a unique project for us. This isn't like just making another goose decoy or something because the overwhelming um, demand for the snow goose has been to um, to be able to supply massive quantities. Like everybody has been asking for numbers of them that are much higher than we're even able to make. And the only way we'd be able to do that is if we just like shut down all our other goose production and just made nothing but snow goose from now on. So that is that's a big a big problem. And then another big problem is you know to get the get the costs down. Um, you know people need uh large spreads of snow geese and you know we are trying to we're trying to kind of work um a little bit in terms of approaching snow geese the way the canada geese were 20 years ago and that is people you know at that time people were convinced that you just had to have massive numbers and it didn't really matter what the decoy looked like um but you just had to have massive quantities of decoys and we've you know we've kind of effectively proven that, that, that that's not true and so it's kind of a fun time with snows um to you know kind of snows are kind of exciting and kind of maybe you know the the the, the new canada's like um there's a, some possibilities of decoying snows really really well as you know and um as long as you've followed all the principles that we do for canada goose decoys which is hiding really well which snow goose hunters aren't i haven't been famous for hiding really well and then using super super high quality decoys with a good finish, which snow goose hunters haven't uh, really had too many options with that. So that's sort of fun, um, but we're kind of open, keeping an open mind, open to anything. And we do want to get the, you know, get the price down um, and make them, make them affordable. So that's, um, you know, us doing the sculptures, that was sort of the, the easy part. Um, and the part that we're familiar with, the part that we're, um, you know, having to work on right now is the actual development of them making them super super user friendly that's another big thing with snow goose hunters is just make the decoys super super user friendly make it so that they can um, go out and pick up 
really, really fast and easy and be super convenient. So that's, that's kind of a big deal. Um, so anyways, the bottom line is next summer um, is that's our goal, that's our plan, and that's our hope. But if they're not ready um, and we have to push it a little bit further, we will. So you have anything to summer add to that summer 2019 this yeah, summer this 2019. year summer this year yeah yep. is our is our goal yep but yeah like you said we're we're very focused on getting it done right yeah um, and, and it's hard to put a timeline on that <laughs> yeah exactly because it, we don't want to you know come up with something and then change it you know change it a short time later so and then on a full body mallard. Um, you know, there's a lot of requests for that. And, um, I, you know, I want them myself. I want a mallard floater myself. Um, and, you know, that's just one of the things. It's, 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 definitely, it's definitely in the back of our minds. It's almost in the front of our minds. It's definitely something that we want to um, come out with. And as, as soon as we possibly can, like, you know, I've been, I've been saying to Brad and Greg and Scott and Nolan and everybody, um, that you know they keep they keep sort of like dictating what my next project is and stuff and i've been kind of joking that you know one of these one of these times i'm just going to tell them all to go fuck themselves <laughs> and just um and just go in my in my studio and just make whatever i want you know and you know kind of where my head's right now i mean the two things that i want for my own hunting right now really bad are a good a really good mallard floater and I want a, uh, I want a doe decoy. I want a doe decoy really, really bad. Um, I, I had a super fun blacktail season. I shot a blacktail buck over, over our decoy. And, um, but I had, a, I had bucks come in and, and try to hump my decoy. Well, no, I shouldn't say try. They successfully humped my decoy. Um, and that really kind of made me realize, especially with blacktails, like how, how great a doe decoy would be. Um, cause they're probably not all gay. So, um, but as far as a full body mallard, I will also tell you that we have a prototype model, um, that's finished and it's probably not one that, that we will mold and go forward with, but, um, but it's a start and we'll either modify it or start, or start over. Um, but, you know, just that sort of thing is in the works, but that's also something that's pretty common with us. We do a lot of prototyping and we make a lot of models um, and we test things and test them on animals to see how they react to them and stuff like that. So we, we actually have a model of a full body mallard right now. Um, so that doesn't mean we're necessarily much, much, much closer to having one on the market, but it does mean that we have you know, we have made some effort towards that. So that's about all I have to say about that. Max Rich Creek wants to know about Aleutian hunting. Okay. Um, well, Aleutians are probably my favorite geese to hunt. Um, so yeah, I'd love to take on that, that question. Um, yeah, they're they're just a super super cool bird, you know. Their you know, their history for those who don't know is that they they were actually at one point down to fewer than 1000 birds and now they've ex their population has exploded. 
um, to I think well over 250,000 birds and <clears throat> you know they went from being protected only 30 or 40 years ago to now the limits up to 10 birds in places um, but they're super fun to hunt they decoy extremely well um, and one of the the neat things about them is that they tend to come in large flocks from up high and they will drop almost vertically um, down into your decoys um, <clears throat> a lot like the the lessers in um, in northeastern Oregon and in southwest or southeast Washington do um, it's really really neat to watch but um, the I say the number one thing about Aleutian hunting. I mean, it, it, it's important that uh, if you're, you know, if you're going to get serious about it, you know, location is number one. You know, um, you, you got to be either on the X or somewhere where you can, you know, traffic them. And if you're going to hunt them on the coast, uh, you got to make sure that, you know, that there's huntable birds there uh, they have a tendency to be you know passing passing through the coast I guess the the birds in in Humboldt do uh, there there's a wintering population there now uh, but as far as the the Oregon coast goes and and northern California coast north of Humboldt Bay the birds are really hit and miss in those areas um, of course they winter down on the um, on the uh, the Delta down in the Central Valley and San Joaquin Valley. Um, and uh, so if you're down there and you can get on a good X, I mean, really, um, they follow the same principles as, as a good cackler hunt, I'd say. You know, hide well. Um, I like to use realistic full-body decoys on them. Um, I use our cackler decoys. We've painted a few of them as illusions. I don't really think that that's, I think that's more for show than anything. They, they decoy real well to the cackler decoys, whether they're painted with the white neck rings or not, but they look pretty cool um, with the rings painted on them. Um, I like, I like big spreads with illusions. I do think that they work, they work well to, you know, spreads of 10 dozen or more decoys. Um, but I've certainly had great shoots, especially if I'm on the X with, you know, fewer than 10 dozen decoys, I'd say, um, you know, three, four dozen decoys, it probably would be the minimum I, I would say would be a, a, a good number to start with if you're, if you're on the X, but, um, but hiding is really important with the illusions. One of the things that I do see a lot of guys try to use artificial grass on the coast and it, it just really off color. It's, it's hard to get that really natural looking, um, you know, grass that will, that will blend in, you know, short of, short of picking it fresh and adding it to your blinds, you know, the morning of the hunt, I, I just don't think there's any substitute for that. So, uh, that's, that's what I tend to do. Um, I've hunted them on the coast and down, uh, down in the, the central Valley and done really well on them in, in both places. But, um, I would compare them to a cackler more than anything, but they do, uh, like I said, they, they kind of tend to drop vertically like, like a lesser, but they respond to, 
you know, a, a cackler style call and a cackler style setup, which, you know, tends to be lots of uh, decoys placed pretty tight together, you know, relative to some of the other subspecies. Do you, um, do you ever use honker decoys with, with your cackler decoys or Aleutian decoys? Yeah, I sure have. Uh, I tend to stick to just cackler decoys, I think out of convenience. The honker decoys, I can't get quite as many in the cart. And like I said, I am pretty big into numbers uh, when it comes to hunting illusions. But boy, I tell you, if I'm in an area that's, uh, that's, that's got a lot of pressure and there aren't, you know, there aren't many guys using honker decoys, absolutely. That, yeah. I mean, I might even throw out just a small spread of honker decoys yeah, because illusions will decoy very well to honkers. Yeah, that's what, that's what I've noticed too on the coast is just, they seem to just trust big birds and drive big birds crazy and all that stuff, and and that seems to work pretty good. Um, one of the things I was going to add about the – you were talking about the people using artificial grass on the coast and it uh, not not looking that great. There is – there is a lot of like raffia type grass available that's that's pre-dyed um, and it's available commercially, and uh, they it's, which is great. It's great. It's really durable and and stuff. Um, but there is a lot of really bad dye jobs, you know. Yeah. And there's a lot of there's a lot of browns that are towards the purpley side, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of greens that are to the blue side, and those are two big big no-nos like those that's just really bad in fact sometime we might do a podcast just on the whole process of making making your own raffia and how to dye it and how and which colors to use and all that stuff so um we'll write that down we'll make we'll make that another podcast or may, maybe put it on our website or something like that i i did a giant batch of of raffia this summer and just just grassed up a blind um a couple weekends ago and stuff and kind of got that all fresh in my head and and for those who are listening that don't know dave is literally the guy who invented the concept of taking artificial grass and dyeing it as a as a means for a, a permanent grassing solution for for your blinds like he was literally the first guy that took raffia grass dyed it a bunch of different colors mixed mixed those those dyed grasses together and came out with just a just a killer killer um combination of of different colored dyed raffia grasses and and boy um if you have the opportunity to listen to that podcast and and hear his instruction on how to do it um i I would highly recommend it uh, because you would not believe how good his his artificial grass blinds look i mean there was a time we hunted remember when you took me out onto that tidal flat and you had your your marsh rat and it was it was completely it was completely done up in your homemade raffia grass and um it was just completely gone when you when you slid it into that cut so it was level with the ground there was no profile Mm -hmm. to it whatsoever and the color of that grass matched the tidal grass just perfectly and you laid down and closed the lids, and the only thing I could see was your head. It was amazing. Like I could have stepped on it if I wasn't looking, you know. I almost should have um, not worn that orange cap. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, but uh, but no, that that stuff is that stuff is awesome, you know. And of course, the one thing I notice about it is um, 
it, it there's a there's a wearing in phase it seems right. like you yep. know it, it takes you you know maybe a dozen hunts or so to, to really get the the grass to kind of look um it's best yeah kind of wears in yep yeah you kind of start on the slightly light side and then it, it kind of darkens over time and it gets a little bit curly and if you start really really dark then it'll get too dark but it i mean the the blind that i just redid i i just got rid of most of my blinds last year that were they had you know a 10 they were going on 10 years so and then i just i just did a new one a couple weeks ago so i hope to get 10 years out of it too it seems then, like the the texture of the grass <coughs> starts out as kind of the leaves are pretty broad and yeah and and over time they kind of shrink up and and split and just looks more natural the, right. the texture of the the grass as well not just the color yep yeah for sure and then you know it 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 might be available i mean the, the all the original um colors and processes and t even type of grass um, that i used was was available through final approach and it was called whoop grass and you know if anybody wants to skip the whole process of trying to make it themselves, you could contact Final Approach and ask them if they still have whoopgrass. I know that they are under new ownership, and so the the new owners may or may not carry that. But you could, you know, you could ask them anyways. Yep. Well, um, looks like we're running out of time, so we're gonna wind down this episode. Um, but we do we do have a few unanswered questions here. Uh, we're going to try to address some of these down the road, um, bearing in mind that we are trying to stay focused on waterfowl still, since we do have a few few months left in in um, the goose season here. Um, oh, but there is one question here by James Skies Eight. Um, we unfortunately didn't have a chance to answer, and that is hot women in the hunting industry, Dave. <laughs> I think it's James Sykes. Um, and then I don't exactly know what the question is, but we're probably not qualified to answer that anyway. So <laughs> I would say that that includes and any woman, the second she puts on any kind of camo, right. uh, is instantly in that category. So that's about all we know though. Right. Or has a gun or, or bow in yeah. hand. Okay. And is doing it. And I would say, and is doing it for the right reasons. You right. know, yeah, like, that's a big one. Not, yeah. Um, okay. Well, we do want to thank everybody for their questions that they sent in. Um, and if you could do us a favor and, and, um, look for our stories on Instagram, we're going to, we're going to try to do some more of these. Send us, send us your questions and, uh, give us your feedback and we'd love to hear from you.